Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams, and I hope the start of 2022 has been smooth for you, and I know that some of you have been sitting paces this weekend, or at the very least, your exam is coming up very soon. So, wishing you the best of luck if you're sitting in the weeks to come. This episode, we sat down for a chat with a luminal luminary, consultant gastroenterologist Dr. Ajay Verma, joined us for a sit-down to discuss inflammatory bowel disease. As we discussed in the episode, he can be found on Twitter at UKGastroDoctor, and we talk about his gastro twirls, which you can find on Twitter from his profile. Ajay was so generous with his time that this is the first part of another double header episode where we cover inflammatory bowel disease both in a pure examination station and then go into detail in a station five. There's so much great learning in this episode that's helpful not just for paces but also for your work on the medical take. So without further ado, let's get into the show. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast, and bringing the hype, having just finished nights, is me, Dr. Sam Williams, and in today's episode, we are joined by another member of the Med Twitter family. It's Dr. Ajay Verma. Ajay is a consultant gastroenterologist and physician at Kettering General Hospital NHS Foundation Trust, and he can be found on Twitter under the handle at UKGastroDoctor. That's D-R, not D-O-C-T-O-R. Ajay, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me on. And one of the first times I became aware of you on Twitter was back when I was doing my core medical training, and I caught your fantastic educational threads, which you had coined as hashtag gastro twirls. That's twirls, T-W-E-A-R-L-S. And for listeners who haven't seen these, Ajay writes these fantastically accessible bite-sized Twitter threads on important topics related to gastroenterology. He's covered topics ranging from alcohol consumption, irritable bowel syndrome, jaundice, celiac disease, as well as the topic for today's episode, which is inflammatory bowel disease. So Ajay, first of all, I wanted to thank you for creating these because they've certainly come useful for me during my time as a core medical trainee several years ago. And I also wanted to ask, what made you first think about writing these tweetorials? 
That's a good question. I, I think they kind of evolved over time. Initially, um, there's, a, there's a hepatologist in uh, the US called Elliot Tapper. And he does these twirls, these, these educational twirls, and he does these really long threads, but it can be about anything in general medicine, not just gastroenterology, and they're, and they're absolutely brilliant. And so I quite like those. And I've also always tweeted out little things. So I'd be sat in clinic and I'd see referrals on a certain thing or a certain thing recurring, you know, be it iron dosing in an ear or et cetera. And I'd tweet those out. And then um, I had a few comments from colleagues and GPs saying, you know, these are actually quite useful. So I felt, well, if I start to uh, put them under um, a hashtag, then it actually forms a theme which are readily searchable and also they're renewable. You know, I can go back to ones I've done two, three years ago and retweet them out or even adapt them or, or refine them if, if things have changed. Um, and they've just been they're just very popular. Uh, they're actually reasonably hard work to write. You know, less is more, but, it, you know, to try and get distill a topic down to three or four tweets is a real challenge. But actually, it is a good challenge because as a specialist, it makes sure... I distill the critical information that is needed for the non-gastro specialist, you know, for colleagues elsewhere. So I, I quite enjoy doing them. I kind of always open to requests as well. So yeah, and it's become something, you know, something that defines my uh, Twitter presence, I think. Yeah, and I think they are absolutely fantastic. So listeners, if you haven't checked these out, I believe, Ajay, you've got them as a pinned tweet at the top of your timeline. So I, I can't recommend it enough that if you're listening, go and just have a look at some of these gastro twirls and uh, you'll you'll find some great educational content there. So through the course of this episode, not only will Ajay be providing his expertise on inflammatory bowel disease, but he will also be trying his hand at our regular feature, Quiz the Consultant. This is the quiz where our bosses take on a quiz on a specialist subject of their choosing, but it cannot be to do with medicine. So Ajay, what have you chosen as your specialist subject? I've chosen Premier League football top scorers. Um, and the reason why I've chosen that, I'm a bit of a sports fanatic. I've got a bit of a strange memory that I remember stats on sports. So it's always a bit of a challenge to see if I can get the old grey matter remembering stuff I've read uh, or seen charts on whilst watching football matches. Brilliant. And as a huge football fan myself, I cannot wait for that a little bit later. But for now... Let's get started on this episode talking about inflammatory bowel disease. So inflammatory bowel disease is reasonably common to come up in paces and it could come up either in an examination station or in a station five. So in the interest of covering as much content as possible, the first part of this episode, we're going to focus on IBD in a pure examination station in a station one and then for the second part we'll be talking about the approach to a station five including the history the differential diagnoses the investigations and as ever the management but before we come on to that Ajay maybe you can just give us a brief overview of inflammatory bowel disease and generally speaking what it means to you uh, yeah sure Sam um, inflammatory bowel disease uh, it's common um, you know, up to one percent of people, and it's the reason why there are so many gastroenterologists around. Uh, we do we manage a lot of inflammatory bowel disease, um, and it is inflammatory bowel disease is an umbrella term to cover Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and there are some grey conditions which maybe overlap the two and lie in the middle. So that's the kind of really brief overview of it. 
if possible, before we start, I know it's probably very basic for our audience, but it's always good to go over the basics. So what are the key differences between ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease? Okay, so ulcerative colitis is uh, obviously a, a bowel condition, so a large bowel condition. Uh, and strangely, despite how unwell patients can be with uh, colitis, ulcerative colitis, it actually only affects the very, very thin mucosal layer of the bowel. It doesn't uh, have an inflammatory component in the underlying muscle. Um, but it's important to remember that if you um, calculate the surface area of the large bowel, you know, it might be half the size of your dinner table, you know, your dining table at home. So it's a big surface area. So the more bowel involved, the more unwell a person can be with this surface area of mucosa leaching out blood and proteins. So osteoclitis, it starts more distally. So towards the anus and, and is a confluent. So you shouldn't be patchy in nature. And the extent will define the kind of severity of symptoms. So you can get limited to just the rectum, which is proctitis, extending up the left side, becoming more extensive into the transverse colon. And then the kind of worst form is a pancolitis, which is obviously the whole bowel. I said just confined to the mucosa. Crohn's disease is a more uh, of a stranger condition in a way. It can affect anywhere from mouth to anus, but typically it is the distal small bowel uh, and the right colon. Uh, it, not only does it affect the mucosa, but it can penetrate into the muscle and through it. Hence why you're much more likely to get strictures and much more likely to get fistulae, either to the skin or to other organs. It's patchy in nature, so you can get uh, you know a very severe part and then normal smaller large bowel next to it, and then another area skipped further down. The other thing, I've tweeted about this once, and I don't think people quite got it, but you see as a symptom is bloody diarrhea. That's the cardinal features. Whilst with Crohn's disease, it can be a lot vaguer, but the, the two cardinal features definitely is abdominal pain and weight loss. The other symptoms, diarrhea, uh, bleeding, are, are not what we call cardinal uh, features. The other thing is UC is quite apparent. You'll get a flare that comes on and it'll come on, you know, it might come on in a few days. Crohn's disease, I once tweeted this, it's, it's, it's a bit like a creepy old man or a creepy old ghost creeping up on you. Uh, and what that means is someone with Crohn's disease may wake up one day and go, I've been really unwell for about three months. And whenever we see someone with a Crohn's disease flare, it's never that this started two days ago, this started a week ago. It's something that creeps up on them over weeks to months. Brilliant. That's a really, really good, concise summary there of, uh, of UC and Crohn's. And we'll be covering the other important aspects of a history slightly later in the episode. So for now, we're just going to focus on inflammatory bowel disease as it may be presented in an examination station. So we're thinking a station one where you'll have six minutes of examination, followed by four minutes of presentation and questions from the examiner. So Ajay, Thinking of the candidates or the listeners who are going to be entering a station where they've got six minutes to examine these patients, as they approach the patient, what's maybe the first signs from the end of the bed, which might give away that this is a patient who may have inflammatory bowel disease? Right, Sam. Uh, inflammatory bowel disease obviously is mainly an internal condition. So it's not usual fodder for uh, station one in paces but you're right uh, we have heard of cases being uh, brought into the exam so you'd expect that there will be some ob obvious external stigmata of uh, IBD and you know whether it you know they've been quite poorly with it so they're 
cachectic or anemic but with lots of pallor and there should be abdominal scars you you'd suggest you know whether they've had uh surgical resection of the small bowel or the large bowel and there may very well be a stoma present um, as well as other scars you may also see some um, uh, lines uh, if they're very poorly and they're requiring uh, parental nutrition Perfect. And so proceeding through the examination in a systematic fashion, usually the first thing which listeners will come to next in the examination is the hands. So what sort of signs might the listeners be able to find in the hands of these patients? So the the books will tell you, you may see clubbing. Um, I've got to confess, I think clubbing is exceptionally rare in in IBD. Um, So I think actually, having been a patient examiner, I think actually clubbing overall is generally quite rare. Uh, but anyway, going back to IBD, you may find signs of uh, pallor and anemia. And if they've got coexisting liver disease, and that, and that may be the, the, the catch for this patient that you're seeing, it's someone with IBD and cirrhosis due to a complication, whether it's medication related or whether it's... Uh, due to PSC and and, and, Crohn's, uh, and and osteocolitis, then they may have liver disease. So you may see pale hands. You may see kind of uh, red patches in keeping with palmer erythema. Uh, palmer erythema. The actual uh, strange thing, the only definitive hand sign of liver disease is actually uh, leukonychia um, of, of chronic liver disease. Um, all the other signs on the hands can be acute. Um, so leukonychia is a very good sign of liver disease, but you may not see too much on the hands. You may see an arthropathy, um, but again, I think severe arthritis associated with IBD is actually unusual. And usually it's more the larger joints than the smaller joints. Some great tips there that the hands actually in this station probably aren't going to be particularly high yield. So as we've said before in these sorts of examination stations, you should be trying to very quickly observe and then move your way through the examination nice and swiftly. Next in the examination would be looking at the arms and then moving up to the sort of and face, neck and chest. So if we start with the arms, Ajay, what sort of things uh, are possible to find in the arms, which might be slightly higher yield in terms of um, giving you an idea this patient might have IBD? I think generally with the abdominal station, you just have to be quite quick with looking at the arms but just be careful um so whether there's evidence of scars due to previous lines um and and you know it's a bit of overlap not directly related but i've heard of cases before with renal patients where you know that they've they've got um a a line or or they've got a, a a kind of dialysis fistula tucked away and hidden because it's under a bit of clothing on the arms so i think as a general tip in this abdominal station especially with ibd quick look at the arms, but make sure you look carefully. So if you can get their, their top off and it's appropriate to do that, and you can actually get them sat forward and look all the way around the arms quite quickly, just to make sure there isn't evidence of lines there. And it may give you an extension of what we talked about, you know, their pallor and cachexia. Um, you know, you may may actually see it more on, on, their, on their arms also. Brilliant. And then moving to the face, and again, these aren't uh, going to cement the diagnosis, which might come more when we get to the abdomen. But there are a few signs which you might find in the face. Yeah. So again, the, the pallor of anemia, looking at the mouth, whether there's obvious uh, ulceration in there at the surfaces. Though, again, 
I, I suspect I wouldn't spend a huge amount of time hunting there. The, the, I think, again, going back to the hands, arms and face, it, it's a brief, concise look at those, um, you know, trying to kind of evaluate so you don't miss something, you know, quickly looking around the neck as well to make sure there isn't signs of lines as well or there's been scars of previous lines quickly. Because obviously, as you said, you want to get to the money, you want to get to the, the abdomen. I always, when I take people around to do paces, uh practice i would say try and get to the abdomen you know within you know at around 60 seconds that's what you need to do your hands arms and face and trying to get the key information on there but uh, that's not obviously where the money is yeah absolutely so with that in mind hopefully the listeners have progressed very swiftly through the parts of the examination we've already covered and very quickly coming to the abdomen where quite rightly you said that's where the money is going to be as you mentioned at the start, some of the things you may find may include scars. So in terms of the, the nature and type of scars, this can be quite variable, can't it? And so what are the sorts of scars that the candidates may watch out for? I suppose it, a lot depends if they have a stoma or not. If, if they have a stoma, then there will be scars associated with that and, and uh, around the stoma and also a scar in, usually in the midline because they've had a laparotomy. Um, and, and that will be very clear. They won't be subtle. And I, I think the key is just to carefully, um, when you examine, you know, lift the stoma bag up and just try and delineate the scars themselves. Because actually looking at the scars and seeing if there's uh, an infection or a, or a fistula tract from a scar, it may be something that may be hidden under uh, under the stoma bag or a little dressing. Uh, if they don't have a stoma, then you would expect if there if there's an IBD case in there, there should be an obvious scar. And as I said, a, a midline scar or a kind of left or right paramedian scar, depending if they've had a you know hemicolectomy. I mean, with Crohn's disease, you'd expect more on the possibly on the right side where they've done that. If you look quite quite carefully around the umbilicus, you might see a port scar because um, more and more our IBD surgical colleagues are trying to do laparoscopic surgery to, to kind of uh, preserve the abdominal wall as much as possible. So this should be very obvious, but yeah, the the ones that can be difficult are the laparoscopic port sites. They will be there, and and there's always one around the umbilicus. So just kind of look quite carefully, and they should be uh, visible. Great. One of the things you mentioned before is that IBD is an an internal condition, so it can be quite difficult unless there is a, a stoma suggestive of a specific operation. It can be difficult to yeah. tell ex- exactly what operation they've had done. Yeah, I would suggest if they put an IBD case in station one, then there's got to be something external as a clue, uh, you know, beyond a scar. I, I, I think it would be a really tough case just to have um, uh, just a simple abdominal scar, unless they had kind of quite gross systemic features, uh, which suggest cachexia and anemia. So you, you normally expect a stoma. The other thing to do, uh, and, you know, there's real life and there's exam life, you know, it's um, whether there is something around the bottom end. Now, in real life, we would have a look and it's not actually necessarily doing a rectal examination, but we often just inspect to see if there's something obvious there. I would be really surprised, to be honest, Sam, if that was put into a PACES case. So, you know, that's in real life where we'd look. But I think for a PACES case, they're going to look at the abdominal wall and you'd expect either a stoma with some systemic signs, or if there's big scars and maybe other systemic signs, and then, then it's trying to put it as a differential. So yeah, this, this you know, given the systemic state of the patient and these scars, uh, I do wonder if they've got an inflammatory bowel disease. 
I, and just one of the things, Sam, that, that kind of, yeah, I think we're going to talk about this next, the site of the stoma may be a clue um, into, the, into the possible different conditions they may have. Well, that seems like a perfect segue to take us into the next bit, which we've already discussed is if there's a stoma there, there's there's often a systematic way of trying to examine a stoma and, and like you say, indications of the type of operation or uh, indeed the, the health of the patient in general on the basis of their stoma. So what should our listeners be looking out for when they come to examine a patient with a stoma? So again, real life and, and kind of paces life in real life we might ask you to take the, the stoma bag away. And the reason why is it's not unheard of for um, stomas to break down. So there was a horrible case I heard once before that a patient admitted to intensive care with sepsis and then desperately unwell for days and, and no one took off their stoma bag. And when they took the stoma bag off, everything was necrotic underneath. Uh, stomas naturally are stretched away from the internal abdomen so the blood supply to the stoma can be compromised. So it can have a fail rate of the stoma of around 10%. I think for the exam, though, it, it's, you can look at the bag, try and look at the contents, and the, maybe the bag is clear. Some stoma bags are clear, so you can actually have a brief look at the, the kind of health of the stoma. But I don't think it would be appropriate to remove the stoma bag during a patient's examination. The site of the stoma... Um, can be indicative but not always um you know the books will tell you uh, a stoma on the left side may, may be a colostomy and and colostomy content should be fecal um a stoma on the right side may be an ileostomy that's usually spouted a bit more that you not, won't necessarily see that through a stoma bag and the content should be uh, a lot paler and maybe more pastier however because ibd sometimes the the nature of Crohn's disease that it can be very patchy and it may have had multiple operations it's sadly not unheard of to have ileostomies anywhere and also have colostomies anywhere so it's a rough guide but don't be don't be confused by that if you see a stoma bag in the midline or you see a stoma bag elsewhere you know on the right side and then it's actually got some stool in it and maybe that they've had to do um, a, a colostomy on that side and it may be a, a defunctioning colostomy or a defunctioning ileostomy that is not permanent or maybe an endoviostomy. We also have things like mucous fistulas, which uh, you may have a, a stoma bag connected and there's not a lot in the bag. In the exam, I would just describe what you see in the content, but it, it's very hard with stomas to necessarily uh, make conclusive definitions, just apart from the fact they've had some type of surgery. Even I, as a physician, you know, we were kind of relative experts on stomas, but when it comes to real issues with those, we still kind of get our stoma nurses involved and, and ask our clerical surgeons. So I think for an exam, the standard would be just to look at it and, and look underneath the bag just to make sure it's not, the bag's not covering something hidden underneath, like the dressing where there may be a fistula or something like that. Perfect. And obviously you're examination of the scars and of the stoma will have to be front and center of your examination but as part of convention in this station the listeners will also have to go through the other aspects such as palpating for organomegaly which may or may not be present um, and blotting the kidneys for example and these are just things which you will have to incorporate into the examination just to show that you're making a complete job of it so just to ensure that you are including these as a matter of completeness don't forget these, even if um, you think you've already found probably the most pertinent signs. Then moving on to the legs, I know there's 
not uh, not loads of signs, but there are maybe a couple of signs. And again, this is something really in the textbooks are, are the rashes that you'll find on the legs, Ajay. So what, what are the sort of characteristic or, or typical rashes that are associated with IBD? So I think that's a really valid point, Sam, that actually that may be the reason someone's been put in a station one if they've got something on their legs. So um, it, that may be something worth seeing, as, as you've said. And the argument is whether you do it in your initial inspection when you look at the arms, if, if the legs are exposed and, and you do it that time, or whether you get to the abdomen and look below. But I would suggest that if it was on the legs, it'd be something quite obvious. And, and the two things that I think would be there if there were would be erythema nodosum. Uh, these are kind of quite obvious red, uh, kind of lumpy nodular uh, lesions found on the legs, and, and they're painful. They're very sore. So if you do see them, just be gentle palpating them as uh, you don't want to upset the patient. Uh, the other thing is a pyoderma gran uh, gangrenosum. Um, these are quite unusual. I've only ever seen a handful in, in my career as, a, as an IBD specialist, so they're not that common. But you'd imagine if one was there and there, there needed a case, you might see that. And it's a kind of ulcerative lesion on the leg. I mean, I think you don't need to go too much into detail. Like if you see an ulcerative lesion on the leg and there's a stoma and abdominal scars, in a way that's a kind of uh, a slam dunk. You could say, well, this looks like a case of inflammatory bowel disease. Yeah, absolutely right. And those are the sorts of things where if you do pick up that sort of stuff from the end of the bed, it's just a case of demonstrating your uh, proficiency of conducting the examination in a slick, fluent and comprehensive way. Lastly, there's a couple of things which may be picked up throughout the examination. And again, these might be quite subtle things which might re uh, relate to the medication the patient might be taking. Um, so what other sort of additional signs might uh, help the listeners get those extra marks from the examiner and show their knowledge of, of these conditions? What extra signs can, can the listeners be looking out for? If we were talking about this 30 years ago, Sam, you might see steroid uh, use features, you know, the moon face and, and stride. Um, I would hope to God we wouldn't see too much of that because of the way we practice now treating IBD, we try and be very steroid sparing. But again, it may be a particular case, you know, where someone's got a stoma scars and, and has had been on prolonged course of steroids, they may have moon face and stride. So, you know, you should, you should see those. But I think the reassuring thing is I'd suspect they'd be really obvious. When you see moon face and the stride, they're not subtle. So it may be something you should pick up initially and to get you on the, you know, when you're doing your first inspection as you approach the patient and, and that can give you a clue on, on what treatment they're on. Other things, I think it's more saying them than necessarily doing that, which is, you know, I would like to conclude the examination in ideally by examining her orifices, um, you know, doing a rectal examination and a rectal inspection. Though, as I said, I wouldn't necessarily suggest you do those I would like to look at their observations and their stool chart. And I think it's worth mentioning the stool chart because that's what inpatient IBD is about in terms of it may be in because of diarrhea. The only other tip I would give, and that's for all abdominal cases, not just IBD, is when you um, examine the abdomen, is also sit them forward and even just have a quick glance at the back, even if it's just, uh, just have a look because there may be something there, you know, you may not have seen uh, and it may be useful for you. And, and also it might tell you how bad their abdomen is if they go, well, I can't actually sit up. It might be that, that you know, they've got a lot of problems in their abdomen itself. So that's something to consider. But I, th I think that's about it. And the kind of finishing touches should be mentioned and concluded, but shouldn't be a, a huge part of your examination. Fantastic. 
So that is the end of our take on a pure examination station of inflammatory bowel disease. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be looking at the elements of a station five, talking about the likely leading and then important parts of a history. Just a quick shout out to our podcast sponsors for this episode of the show. Within PassTest.com's catalogue of over 100 video cases, there are at least two different videos covering inflammatory bowel disease, both in a Station 1 and a Station 5 style scenario. So once you're finished listening to this episode of the show, head over to PassTest.com paces and sign up to get access to over 100 video cases. But for now, let's get back to our chat with Dr. Ajay Verma. So we're back again discussing a station five this time of a patient with inflammatory bowel disease. So Ajay, when we talk about the likely leading or the vignette for a PACES station for a patient with possible inflammatory bowel disease, what are the sorts of things the listeners should be looking out for in the vignettes? So I mentioned it earlier, and, and I think remembering the cardinal features is a good start. So if they're trying to get you towards an colitis field, you know, of a case, then you're looking at bloody diarrhea as a cardinal symptom. And then obviously the differentials that, you know, that you'd have to have with bloody diarrhea. If they're talking more about uh, Crohn's disease, you'd expect perhaps more into the weight loss, abdominal pain, possibly some diarrheal symptoms as well. Uh, it, it's more likely to be a youngish patient, especially with Crohn's disease. With, with UC, it's got a bimodal prevalence. So it may be a younger patient, but it can be someone in middle age. So yeah, change of bowel habit, bleeding, weight loss, those would be the, the things I'd expect in the in the vignette. Maybe if they're being a bit sneaky, there might be symptoms of anemia in there, you know, whether they're, they're syncopal or they're, they're, people have noticed they're very pale or they've been struggling with fatigue. So, uh, but hopefully it shouldn't be too subtle. You know, there should be, uh, you know, people who are prepared, there should be something in the history that uh, stands out there. Yeah, and one question I had was, Regarding abdominal pain in these patients, what is the nature of the pain? Because you must see many, many patients describe many different types of pain. Is there a, a very typical presentation or is it just generalized sort of non-specific abdominal pain? It's quite interesting when you do the revision and when you learn about abdominal pain, you know, you talk about sharp pains, you talk about colicky pains, you talk about, about crampy pains. And, and I think for bowel, you know, if you were to describe a subtype, it's more like to be crampy colicky pain. Uh, in keeping with obstruction uh, or, you know, kind of semi-obstructive symptoms. I, I think that the, the issue in real life, and I think I'm sure you know this, Sam, is patients don't describe things very well. Uh, not all of them do. The, and, and we then jargonize it. So we ask about acute or chronic. And for a patient, the term chronic just means bad. They, they don't necessarily work out what that means for them. So I, I think it's just concentrate on the pain. I think the crucial thing about abdominal pain, especially with Crohn's disease, is it's usually worse after meals. So that would be the, the key thing to, to elicit. It may be in the history, but it's the question that needs to be asked. More, you know, a really key question about abdominal pain if the case is an IBD case. And what's the normal sort of time scale of that? When you say after meals, sort of how long after the meal would you expect the patient to start experiencing pain? Uh, so it would be within the hour or two, basically. So it's, it's a diet, you know, as, you, as your stomach empties and, and you, you start to fill the small bowel, and if the small bowel is the calibre's narrow due to stricture disease or, or inflammation, 
then has the small bowel starts to peristalse harder to try and get it through a narrower calibre lumen. And obviously it's that uh, peristaltic pain, uh, peristaltic waves that are of an increased intensity that will give this kind of colicky, crampy pain. So you'd expect it, you know, with septomeres, I would say usually within the hour, maybe an hour, hour and a half. Perfect. One of the things which, again, you learn about in medical school, but again, you need to brush up for in paces is the extra intestinal manifestations of inflammatory bowel disease. So as you've mentioned already, not everything is as we read it in the book. So which of the extra intestinal manifestations do you find are the most common? And then which are the ones which candidates should be asking about just to demonstrate their knowledge of these uh, of these manifestations? Really good question, Sam. So I think in real life, the most common may be the, the joint side of things, possibly some occasional gritty eyes type of things or some skin changes. But for exam world, they definitely want you to, you know, they'd ask you about uh, eye symptoms. They'd want you to ask about the joints, definitely. They want you to ask about skin changes. And, and I, I think to cover liver disease, it's just, you know, have you ever had issues with jaundice? It would be worth mentioning. Just as a general systemic thing, two things to add. So mouth ulcers, obviously, is something to ask about. And these, uh, the cardinal's feature is for the patient will be pain. These are painful ulcers. The final thing to mention, and I probably should have mentioned it earlier, with weight loss, we're taught weight loss, and it's very simple. You've lost weight. How much weight have you lost? Now, a lot of patients in real life don't weigh themselves. They have no idea. So... When um, I ask about weight loss in the clinic, and I would say the same for an exam, there are two key features for me that stand out for weight loss, which would be convincing for weight loss. And one is, are your clothes looser? So be it, you know, for men, that typically be their trousers, and, and for women, it would be their skirts and dresses. And then the other thing as well is, if, if they're a bit umming and ahhing about that, the other thing is, has anyone who that you work with or a friend or, or relatives that you don't see every day said to you, oh, you've lost weight. And actually, I think in real life and exam life, if either of those two are positively reported, that is actually a reasonable measure of weight loss. Really good tip there for not only an exam of paces, but also in our clinical practice. You're quite right. Not every patient weighs themselves and some might have no idea, but it's the physical appearance of these of, of patients over a period of time, which only their friends, relatives, or um, other people who see them often might notice. And so one of the things, obviously in a history, we're trying to figure out, is this inflammatory bowel disease or is this something else? So if we're thinking about sort of differential diagnoses, which might have the similar or which might have a similar presenting complaint to IBD, what are the sorts of questions we should be asking to differentiate IBD from some of the more common differential diagnoses? Okay, so if we go through them, I mean, celiac disease is just as common as inflammatory bowel disease, 1% of the population. They shouldn't be having uh, blood in their stool, but they, they can have all the other symptoms in terms of weight loss and abdominal pain and cachexia and anemia. The, the bowels can be very erratic. And actually, celiac disease is a, is a great mimicker and, and can give you uh, you know, even quite severe celiac disease can range from quite debilitating symptoms to having no symptoms at all. Uh, so it's worth having a differential. And, and I think it's fair in real life and, and in exam life to say, you know, we would always screen for celiac disease in anyone who we suspect of having inflammatory bowel disease. And it is not unheard of to have inflammatory bowel disease and celiac disease. Associated with that is, is the, the 
the very itchy rash that you can get, which is a, a dermatitis herpetiformans. Um, it's actually really rare. So I haven't seen too many cases of it, a handful, uh, but it, it may be the, the case they want to chuck in, you know, someone with weight loss, abdominal pain, anemia, cachexia, you know, pala, and they've had a very itchy rash in the past, which has been treated. Um, so that's that's kind of celiac disease. Irritable bowel syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, again, a lot of overlap. You shouldn't really get blood in the stool again, and you shouldn't get weight loss with irritable bowel syndrome. Not really. I mean, you can do, but not to the same extent as inflammatory bowel disease. When you've got active IBD, that will fire up 24-7. So you should you will get nocturnal symptoms of that. And a marker of active disease of IBD, a bit like asthma, when it's active, is you'll get symptoms at night. You shouldn't get that with IBS because it's driven by uh, cortisol to a degree and, and kind of life stresses. Then when you're asleep, hopefully that's not as stressful as, as being awake and being at work. The, the one kind of interesting thing is now, if we talk about infectious diseases causing uh, infectious diarrhea causing bowel symptoms, you know, so you can get very acute, severe colitic illnesses such as Shigella, Campylobacter, Salmonella. Um, you can get um, more chronic things like Giardia with, for, for travelers. But once these are treated, you can get a post infective irritable bowel syndrome. So that, that is a kind of important thing to ask if it's a triggering infection. And a differential would be, especially if they don't have the weight loss and it's just more kind of bowel, erratic bowel symptoms and some cramping abdominal pain is whether this is a post-infective irritable bowel syndrome. The way we kind of characterize that, a post-infective one, I always explain to patients, and it's a good way to understand it, it's a bit like twisting your knee. If you twist your knee in real life, you know, it will swell up, it will be awful, and that joint will... Uh, you know be failed it won't work for a period of time but eventually the swelling will go down and you'll be able to walk around and, and it'll be look okay but the actual function of that knee may not be back to normal for months and and that's exactly the same as an internal uh infectious injury of the bowel uh, so you know you might be able then stop having the profuse diarrhea and able to eat and drink but the bowel may be erratic for many weeks and months after an infection uh, because of the the kind of damage due to that and that's the post-infected component so that could be a presentation that looks like ibd you know an acute severe infection maybe after traveling and then uh, kind of prolonged ibs symptoms after recovery and then if you've got an older patient so if you've got patients as they get older, uh, then you, you're looking at things like uh, diverticular disease, uh, ischemic colitis. Um, and the other thing to mustn't forget uh, as people approach middle age is, is bowel cancer. And it's always worth mentioning those three as differentials, you know, if you're getting patients past their 40s into their 50s and 60s and older. Yeah, fantastic. So really important to just consider all of those differential diagnoses. And it may not be possible to pinpoint an exact diagnosis so it can be important to hedge your bets by mentioning as many of those as possible and then thinking about additional elements of the history as we normally would uh, would give it in paces um past medical history can be important so thinking of the ischemic colitis someone with cardiovascular risk factors or uh, a vascular path maybe they have uh, atrial fibrillation and it could be a, an embolic uh, source of um, ischemic colitis might be something to to ask about things related to um, inflammatory bowel disease would be other autoimmune conditions. 
I guess one other thing which might fit into the infectious diarrhea side of things might be uh, C. diff. Um, Ajay, would you, would you agree with that? And, and what sort of questions might you ask about a patient with possible C. diff? Yeah, that's a very fair point. Usually, patients with C. diff have had repeated hospital admissions. So it may be worth asking if someone has a kind of infectious type history as a prelude to longer term symptoms, if whether they've, they've been unwell and had repeated courses of antibiotics. I, I would suggest that would be a pretty harsh case to put as a station five. But yeah, it is worth kind of just mentioning that. I think when you have a case like this where there's so many different differentials, I think it, as long as you nod to each one to a degree, uh, you don't have to deep dive into each one because you will not have time. I think that will show the examiners that at least you're appreciating it. So when you talk about the infectious side of things, you could mention, you know, could this be related to travel or could it be related to antibiotic therapy? And as you mentioned with the cardiovascular side of things, you know, is it ischemic colitis, you know, whether they've got a history of atrial fibrillation or, or peripheral vascular disease as, as a kind of uh, indicator of, a, of being a, a vascular path. But you can't then obviously get bogged down too much going into that history when you've got the rest of things to cover. Yeah, certainly. And it might be important to ask about family history of, of other autoimmune diseases. And again, these are things which you might just need to just nod to uh, through the course of your um, history taking. And then one thing I wanted to ask you about, Ajay, is, is smoking, because this is something which I think has come up before in, when I've done my revision for PACES and probably before in medical school. But the effect of smoking on inflammatory bowel disease is quite, is quite varied. And there's lots of sort of stories that go around about the effect of smoking on IBD. So I wonder if you could just clear that up for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so sorry, just to jump back to the family history, you're right. I think for a case like Station 5, that may be something they want to say, you know, um, yeah, my 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 dad's got Crohn's disease, or or my my mom's got colitis, and and there is a family predominance of um, IBD as well as celiac disease. So yeah, absolutely right to ask that question, and hopefully that should be an indi- indicator. Smoking. So uh, we talk about Crohn's disease. The way I explain it to patients, uh, and when I trained, we always were told smoking was bad for Crohn's disease, but actually a lot of the evidence shown that the biggest risk factor for recurrence of Crohn's disease after surgery is smoking. And the way I explain it to patients is, you know, if you imagine Crohn's disease as a, a fire, you know, something going on in the abdomen, a fire, and all the treatments we give, steroids, immunospression, are hose pipes and buckets of water. Every time you smoke, it's basically putting lighter fluid back on it. So that's what Crohn's disease does to smoking. It is it is enough by itself to disable the treatment. And I have got a patient who um, uh, has had refractory Crohn's disease despite treatment. And as soon as she stopped smoking, all the treatment started to work. So that, that's probably the kind of how important it is for Crohn's disease. Where it gets muddy, I think it is with ulcerative colitis. It's kind of famed in MRCP books that ulcerative colitis is a condition that some patients, if they stop smoking, may unmask it. And, and there is a degree of truth to that. And, and obviously it is kind of a, that nice bit of trivia, you know, what, what condition is, is better with smoking. But the reality is, we, as a clinician, we, we never advocate to smoke. You know, so I always say to people, I say, look, the, the answer is never going to be, I'm never going to tell you to smoke. So it's important in history, if someone describes that to say, I stopped smoking, this came on, that might be the little catch within the pace station to say, yeah, this is going to be ulcerative colitis. 
But in the management, the answer is never to go back to smoking. It is stop smoking. And I was explaining to the patient, the smoking hasn't caused or unmasked your stichitis. It was there. It's just there is some suggestion that smoking may be associated with the revelation of symptoms. But yeah, so yes, important in the history, not important in the management. Perfect. And then one thing which is always worth mentioning in the social history, taking a, a look at the patient in a holistic sense is what's the effect this is having on their home or work? Because having a, a flare of UC or Crohn's is, is clearly going to have significant effects on those. And it's, and it's important to make sure we're looking after our patient in every aspect of their life, not just in the medical sense. Yeah, absolutely correct. Some, you know, work, um, hobbies, sports, uh, sleep, you know, and, and even, I mean, I wouldn't suggest in a pacer station, but in real life, you know, even things like sleep and sexual function and all of that is, is all affected by IBD. So I, I would concentrate on work and family life and, 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 you know, maybe hobbies, you know, maybe someone who loves to play golf but can't because their IBD is pretty bad. Um, and, and that's absolutely right. You know, if you manage, if you have a station five case of rheumatoid arthritis, you know, you'll look at their functional side of things, won't you? You'll look at their hands and try and get them to pick up things, you know, but undo a button or write with a pen or something like that. And, you know, it is an internal condition. So it is looking at the social extension of their function. So absolutely important to address that. It would be key and, and you know, it, it's what actually worries the patient more. The, you know, the symptoms they hate, but if they can work and, and get on with things, they're much more tolerant to them than if they can't work. Brilliant. That brings us to the end of our history. And we've already comprehensively gone through the examination. So what is going to be important is bringing together the elements of what we discussed earlier and basically contracting that and targeting it to whatever the patient has reported to you. So hopefully what we discussed earlier is enough for you to uh, condense down and basically conduct a, a quicker examination in a station five. So we're not going to go into that in loads of detail. So after you've conducted a brief examination, the examiner is going to be expecting you to explain a management plan to the patient and also discuss the differential diagnoses. We've already discussed the differential diagnoses through the course of our history taking. So clearly inflammatory bowel disease is up there. We've discussed celiac disease, infectious diarrhea, ischemic colitis, drug-related colitis, irritable bowel syndrome, and a couple of things which I've seen as well as radiation uh, colitis and um, obviously bowel cancer as well. So we've, we've already covered the important differential diagnoses uh, through the course of our history taking. And then the presentation, as usual, you're going to clarify your preferred diagnosis and justify your reasons why you think that's going to be so, relating to the history you've taken from the patient and any findings which you may have found on examination. So listeners, that brings us to the end of this first part of our chat with Dr. RJ Verma on inflammatory bowel disease. But keep your eyes peeled on our next episode where we will be taking a deep dive into the investigations and management of these patients. And not only that, but Ajay will be taking on the topic of top Premier League goal scorers in Quiz the Consultant. So keep your eyes peeled for that coming up in the next couple of weeks. As always, do give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. If you really want to go above and beyond and support the show, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at prepacespodcast for bite-sized tweets covering all the learning points from each episode. And visit the website prepacespodcast.com. 
Thanks for listening, guys. I've been Dr. Sam Williams, and we will see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast. <laughs>